Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 62 with Justin Kana. Expressing myself through food and having like fun dishes that, you know, just make people happy in whatever way that they're celebrating. I would do those types of experiences on Fridays and Saturday nights, like the, the nights when people actually go out to eat. I didn't want to have to worry about what is my happy hour menu on Tuesday going to be, you know, because most people know, like, unless you're in like a high foot traffic area, doing something like that is literally discounting your offerings in hopes that people will come in and fill your seats. You know what I mean? You're, you're taking it at a loss on the food side in hopes that people will buy alcohol. And so there's so much of like the food and restaurant and those types of business models and, and mentalities that just didn't make sense to me. And it, it just seemed like signing up to a swimming competition where you start by tying weights around your ankles. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This week on the podcast, I have Chef Justin Kana. He's the co-founder of Voyager's Table, a bespoke event production company. He's also the host of the Emulsion podcast and has a YouTube channel that has more than 20,000 subscribers. Justin spent a number of years working in and staging in some of the best restaurants in the world, including Per Se, Grace, Noma, and Restaurant Franzen. Our discussion went really long. It went a little over two hours, so I decided to cut this one into two parts. So this is part one, and next week or later this week, part two will be released. On the show, some of the things we discuss are the transition from restaurant cooking to the personal chef and event business, staging, content creation, podcasts, and YouTube, best practices from the world's best chefs, pop-ups, and charging for your services. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. All right, welcome everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today we have Chef Justin Kana. So Justin spent a number of years working in some of the best restaurants in the world, including Per Se, Grace, Noma, and Restaurant Franzen. He is the co-founder of Voyager's Table, a bespoke event production company. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be on here. It's uh, been too long that we've gone without, well, minor interactions on Twitter is, is one thing, but having this kind of long form discussion is going to be even more of a pleasure. Most definitely. I think there's a, a growing number of like food podcasters on Twitter and they tend to be communicating with each other and interacting and talking not just about food, but podcasting and the whole food media world right now. And I think it's a, a good time to be back on Twitter, something that I've always loved. I've talked about how I got on, you know, like 10 years ago, I think, and it was really great for networking in the food world. And then it fell off a bit. And now I feel like it's coming back a bit. It's the Wild West for sure in that not only are these skills that don't get taught at restaurants or like any of our, like you can't take a podcasting course at culinary school, but then at the same time, there's this like, so I have my own podcast called The Emulsion and I just, people that, I, I had a video, it was a knife bag review video and I asked people like how long their commute was and it's just like, you hear people that are just, they, they have these two 45 minute windows of their day and they're on their way to work or they start off the shift prepping in the kitchen by themselves with pair of headphones in and like why would you not take advantage of that in a way especially like where, where you're bringing these conversations to light and I talk a lot about just like 
improving your career and, you know, conversations with people who are going down some unconventional paths as well. So I think that it's a, it's, it's a great resource for people that I certainly didn't have when I was starting out. Well, I think one of the things is now you're seeing so many more food entrepreneurs. I mean, even a decade ago, for me, it was almost unheard of. Like I was just starting my business as a side hustle 10 years ago and nobody was using the term side hustle. I was just trying to figure a way out of my job. But as you have your own business, you also need to be your own marketer unless you have the money to hire someone. I think the easiest thing is you start blogging, you start doing your own photos, you have a website, now a podcast. I mean, I think it's a great way, obviously, to get attention to your business and what you do. But I also think it's a great way to just network with people. And it's amazing to see how many of them there are. Every day, there seems to be a new just food podcast. Do you listen to a lot of food podcasts? I, I don't. I admittedly don't listen to a ton. Yeah, I don't listen to that many, actually. I mean, for me, it's more about episodes. And I'm sure it's the same with like maybe our listeners. Like I go for guests. So I know some of the better known guests on my podcast, you know, you clearly get higher listens to. Or if it's a topic I'm interested in. Uh, I think we're all going through the same thing right now with COVID and schedules changing. Like I don't have a commute like I used to. Um, I used to listen to a lot more. But I'm listening to podcasts that I admire outside of the food space to make myself better at podcasting. Same, same. You know, I think it's the same way with like food and art. Like I was almost inspired by travel and art and things outside of the food world. So it's not like just being in an echo chamber of everyone's doing the same thing. So I'd rather listen to the Tim Ferriss show or, you know, Joe Rogan, like what are these guys doing to build a bigger podcast? Gary Vee, obviously, you know, all, all of their things and taking their models and then applying it to my own. Yeah, I think you're also, and I do the same thing, you're probably taking some different insights from episodes of like Tim Ferriss than uh, one of your listeners would take from your podcast. And when I say that, it's like, you are the one that's going to be asking future questions. And so you can take a lot from, you know, how Tim asks questions and structures conversations versus someone who wants to learn a little bit more about what it takes to be a chef without a restaurant. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you never know who your market is. You know, I think I was thinking if I had a guest on who had a following that like his followers or her followers would listen, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. It's more in like the business entrepreneurship realm. So I'm getting people outside of the food world listening to the show because we're talking about business advice. I've, I've had a lot of candid conversations with business owners and I don't think they always want their customers to hear that. You know, when you're there's a lot of struggles right now, especially with COVID. And we've had people come on saying like, I'm barely hanging on and I don't know if my business is going to be around in a month. They don't necessarily want to advertise that to their customers to hear that they're potentially going to be closed in a month. So I'm kind of looking at like, wow, I did this one hour show with you, which is basically like a commercial for you. I can't believe you didn't share it on your Facebook page. And then you go back and you listen and you think, oh, maybe they don't want their customers to hear that. They want it to be business advice for other business owners, but they don't want their customers to get worried that their restaurant is going to close. That's a fascinating insight. And then the other, well, the other thing I was going to share on your point on going for specific episodes, I, I, I think that I hope we see it with Spotify. Like I hope Spotify figures out how to do like a great explore style function with episodes of podcasts as opposed to the kind of like Apple centric, I use overcast for listening to my podcast where it's like, they'll give you good shows or shows that are getting a ton of downloads right now. But the kind of like, um, curated exploring type of, you know, feature, I, I haven't found something that that is really like, super good yet. And I think the interesting thing is to have a good variety, 
not within just yourself, but within all the podcasts in your realm. So like if there's four or five of us doing shows, I don't want to be that we're all having the same guests because you see that on everything else. Like you listen to Tim Ferriss and he'll have Naval Ravikant and you listen to James Altucher and he'll have Naval Ravikant. And then like a week later, he'll be on Gary Vee. And it's like, they're not really telling you much new stuff. They're telling the same stories and anecdotes on each show. So I look at podcasts like yours and see like, who have you had on? It's like, oh, you just had Chef So-and-so. Then I don't necessarily want to do that right now. Totally. Um, But people are podcasting with such frequency. I mean, you look at some of these guys who are putting out a show like every day or every other day and it's like, wow, they're going to grab everyone. Like I need to get some guests lined up before they get on the best served podcast or something like that. I, I, I wish I had that kind of conviction because if, if I went audio only, I know I could just have so much more speed, but like I'm, I, I have such a romantic and maybe it's necessary. Maybe it's a little bit, uh, too inflated on just appreciating video because I watch so much video myself. And so I just think that there should be a video element to so many of these things. But if I have an idea out and there's a guy who, I've, who I'm following who has gotten me a lot more okay and accepting of the fact that writing might be the thing that is, is a little bit better for me because if I have the ability to kind of let my thoughts calcify by writing them, then at least I know if I publish a piece of content before a video comes out, then at least it's a well-formed thought that then might dictate based on the feedback it gets how I can structure a video under the same subject. But... Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who are doing really incredible daily shows. I don't, I, I don't have the chops for it yet. Well, I guess if you're also working a nine to five, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people working nine to fives who are also doing shows, but especially now, a lot of people are not working and they're going heavy, myself included. I mean, I lost a lot of work. Thankfully, I'm back to work some, but I'm not working at the volume that I was before. So I have more time, which is why I can record three shows in a week. Uh, and then it's just as long as it takes for me to edit them and get them out, which takes a lot more time than I think people realize if they're not into this thing. 100%. So let's go back a little bit. How did you get into the food world? Were you always interested in cooking and food? Ish. I, I, the, the, the early exposure I had to food was through travel, just like on family vacations. Like we would road trip from where I grew up in Wisconsin, like up into like Niagara Falls and then down into Boston and then into like New York area. Uh, we like went to Spain and I remember going to like a suckling pig restaurant, um, going to just Chicago was like the close city for me. And I just like enjoy, enjoyed food growing up, but I grew up in a tiny 1500 person town in Wisconsin where pizza and burgers and chicken wings was like the gastronomy of, of, of the, the area. And so my, my dad is grew up in India in Northern India. And he moved here after he graduated college. And my mom is from like a small town in Wisconsin. And so my Indian grandmother passed away when I was around 11 and she cooked, she would cook for herself. But I, again, when you're, when you're that young, like you either, if I, if I spent a lot of time with her, I feel like I would have gotten a little bit more into food, but my uh, American grandmother is like, she's a product of her, her time. She would just like lots of stuff from packages, you know, like lots of oven baked or, or one pot kind of, kind of things that are like very Americana, scallop potatoes, like spiral cut ham, all that kind of stuff. So I don't have the story of like being next to my mother's or my grandmother's apron strings, uh, growing up. What I did do a lot growing up was like 
I played a lot of video games. I was in, like, I did track and field. I was in, I played jazz trumpet. I was on the math league. Like, I did a bunch of stuff because I thought that I was going to go, my dad wanted me to be a computer programmer and he wanted me to go to a good school that would eventually give me kind of like a good career. Um, and so I did a lot of these diverse extracurriculars in, in a hope that it would give, it would set me up and tee me up for kind of like a good college acceptance. And I just remember sitting in my high school guidance counselor's office and her saying like, like, do you want to go through these applications to like these big schools? Uh, it was like my junior year of high school. Like I have, I had a 4.0, I was ready to do it. And then she was, she asked me that and I was like, I kind of want to go to, I want to, I kind of want to try cooking school. And I don't, it's, it's funny because it's one of those things where I wish I could remember if there was a singular moment when I knew that I wanted to do this thing, but cooking for me, and this is kind of like the punchline was this cool combination of all these other things that I had done in my kind of like in that point in your life where you don't really know what you want to do yet, but you're forced to make a decision where it was like, I was on my feet working with my hands. There was the ability to travel, which I knew that I wanted to do. I was working with people on a day to day, but it, it was, it was the right kind of creative where I knew I wasn't going to be a starving artist. Like I knew there was like an element of like my dad watched tons of the um, food network uh, when I was growing up. And so I would see like Emeril Lagasse have like all of these different lines of products and stores and uh, you know, Mario Batali before the whole fiasco, like having all these restaurants and, so I knew there was, there was an element where I could be a creative without being a starving artist. But then at the same time, like there was enough of the kind of like science of cooking in there where it was like it satisfied my, my nerd side. And like, you know, it's one of the last industries where you're working with tools like sharp tools like knives and, you know, spoons. And most of the people who follow my stuff know that I'm like a huge gearhead at heart. And so it's like it checked enough of those boxes where I was like, okay, well, I can do this as kind of like this is going to be what I go to after college. And then if I end up kind of enjoying it, then, then it'll just be an upside. It's just none of those other things like going into music or going into academia or being an athlete or anything like that, like really got me excited to a point where I was like, I, I can do this as a career. Cooking was the first thing that really um, stu stood out like that. And then I moved to New York for culinary school and then the door just got blown off, man. Like being in a kitchen for the first time and just like feeling the adrenaline and the camaraderie and like the pressure of being there by five o'clock and like putting up a plate that someone was happy with, or even just like, I've always enjoyed those tasks and activities that have immediate feedback. Like I liked, I liked driving. Uh, tennis is like one of my favorite sports where it's like, you, you just, you, in the moment, you know, like immediately what you have to do to do better. But then at the same time, it's not something where, um, it's like a, like you're submitting a proposal to a client and you have to wait six days before you hear back from them. Do you know what I mean? It's like you either like the egg is either cooked or it's not, you know? And in that moment, like you, you can either do it again or you just, you get sent home, you know? And for some reason that like, that really, I really enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, I hope that kind of gives a little bit of a foundation. Yeah. And you've worked at some of the best restaurants in the world. I mean, it's amazing. So you did per se was your internship for school. Is that right? Yeah. So the funny story there is I really wanted a linea. Like I remember I, I'm the type of obsessive that just finds something that they enjoy. And I really just dive, dive deep into like learning all about it. And I remember discovering a linea right around 2009, 2010, and I just became obsessed with what Grant and the team were doing. Like they were doing things with food that I didn't even think was 
possible. I thought it was beautiful. I really just got a huge amount of respect for him and his story. And I thought for sure that I was going to go to Alinea. I was going to work under Grant. I was going to come back to Alinea after my culinary school time. And I was going to mentor under him. And then I was going to open a three-star Michelin restaurant in Chicago. That was the goal. Um, and Alinea was just a horrendously bad experience. Like I showed up there on the first day and the first thing that anybody said to me was don't talk to me. Like that was the first thing that uh, some guy said when I walked in the door. Um, and then like, uh, I just like, I got paired up with a chef de partie and my only job during service was to sweep the floors. Like I, I could tie these little bundles together of, I think it was thyme, cinnamon and rosemary with a little bit of twine. And like that went into a bowl that they would pour water over to make like a tableside broth that you would smell as you were eating this uh, squab dish. I'm almost, I'm almost positive. But like if I wasn't tying those little bundles, I was sweeping the line and the just, it, it's just a crazy environment. And I, I, I truthfully, like I cut my finger uh, really bad, like as I was dicing butter and I just had to like hide it and like go, go like go back out into the alley because I was just like so embarrassed. Like I, I clearly was not ready for Alinea. Um, but at the same time, I just, I saw the types of learnings that I would go through in an environment like that. And I was like this, I don't know if this is exactly how I want to spend my externship. Like I, I I'm actively choosing at the Culinary Institute of America, they, they dissuade you from taking unpaid externships because for most students, it's like a four-month thing. I wanted to extend mine to be six months to get as much out of the, the time that I could. Um, and they the school actively dissuades you from taking unpaid externships because they know that the students aren't always treated the best. Um, there's a high rate of people that don't end up returning to the college after doing a unpaid externship. Um, and so I tell the joke that like per se was my plan B, like I had staged at a ton of different places in New York and I was just like, okay, Alinea didn't work out. I want to go stage at per se, because if I didn't go to per se, that would, I was so panicked that that did not set me up on the path that was in my head of like, you're going to work at a three Michelin star restaurant. That's going to tee you up to go get a chef to partie job after the, after school. And that's going to be your golden ticket to opening this three star in Chicago. But yeah, per se was a, a very eye-opening and very fulfilling experience because I was so prepared to make the most of it. I think there's a lot of people who uh, have horror stories about per se. There's a lot of people who were just peers of mine as externs at per se who were just like, they just went through the motions, you know, like they would just like go to the bathroom for 15 minutes and sit on their phone. Uh, they just tried to find the tasks that were just like the easiest ones on the prep list to do. And they would just say like, oh, I'm going to go cry back the chive oil, you know, like as opposed to, you know, wanting to stay after and do foie gras projects with the AM sous chef, you know, like you, it really taught me the, the mentality of like an experience is what you make it, not necessarily like, I mean, you have this incredible opportunity because at the time, Sam Sifton gave per se best restaurant in New York, like while I was an extern there, which like was completely bonkers because it was like one of his last reviews, if I'm not mistaken, as like the food critic for the New York Times, which is like there's four stars in the New York Times and there's best restaurant in New York at the New York Times. Uh, I mean, the cylinders that that place was firing on at that time is just like ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that was a really good 
experience, not just from a network building perspective, because I still keep in touch with a lot of those people that were at that restaurant at that time, but it also gave me the confidence to know what it was like to operate, like to, to just stand in a kitchen like that and not get intimidated because like you get yelled at and screamed at, you get called an idiot, like you mess things up and it's such a valuable place to do it from, from like the lens of an extern, like you're, you're there working for free. They know you're only going to be there for a couple of months. And so it's like, you have enough skin in the game to take things seriously, but at the same time, it's like not going to completely cripple you where you're uh, worried about it ruining your career if you fuck something up. I mean, internships are such an interesting thing. I had to do one for Johnson Wales, but mine was like almost the opposite experience. I mean, it was a good experience, but I ended up working at a hotel in Minneapolis. Like I randomly picked Minneapolis because they had housing there, but I got to learn so much because it wasn't one of those places. So I love Chicago. I'm a lot older than you. I wanted to go to Charlie Trotter's. There you go. And I remember they offered me a job, but it was not paid at all. And I would have to pay for housing. So I'm 21 years old. I'm going to have to move from like Providence, Rhode Island to Chicago, figure out where the hell to live, how to pay for it and not make any money. But I thought that's where I wanted to work. Like when I was that age, that was the pinnacle of like fine dining. And they offered me a job and I had to turn it down. And I think in hindsight, it was probably a good choice. I've heard so many horror stories about him and how he runs his kitchens and it doesn't align with how I like to run my kitchens. And I don't think I would have been happy there. So I ended up going to this hotel where I was paid. So I had skin in the game there and they held me accountable. Like I was given jobs. I'm not sweeping floors because I'm getting paid a salary to be there. But I walked in first day and after introducing myself, they put me right to work and didn't even give me, you know, I had freedom. It was like, we have an event. We need you to do like a, you know, a fruit and cheese tray. Go do it. How do you want me to do it? Oh, well, you're a chef. Figure it out. The, tr- the mirrors are in the hallway. The stuff's in the fridge. Like no one was micromanaging me, sure. but I was working the line by the end of the week. I mean, it wasn't just doing mundane prep stuff. Like I was on hotline. I was creating specials and doing all this stuff. And I learned so much from those guys. I mean, my chef was classically trained French, but he was also like a Minnesota hunter and, you know, had a lot of game stuff on the menu and, and fish and really cool things. And I learned so much more there than I even thought I was going to, because it was, I mean, we worked the hotline at night and there was two line cooks and an expo. And that was it. You know, like there was no place to hide. There was no 15 minute bathroom breaks. It was like totally in the line. And you had to learn like every station in that kitchen for both the restaurant and the hotel or the, the catering department. So it was really interesting and I'm really glad I got to do it. And I got to live in a penthouse for three months. Jeez. Not bad. Not No, bad. not bad at all. They, they were <laughs> renovating it. And I got there and there was me and one other guy from Johnson & Wales and they put us up in the penthouse. So the two of us had the whole top floor, the whole 13th floor to the whole hotel. It was a pretty sweet t- time in my life yeah, to be some, 21 living in a hotel in downtown Minneapolis. Yeah, there's some ridiculous opportunities that come. I almost, I almost, almost, if I wasn't going to um, go to find a job in fine dining, I remember it was like two weeks before our graduation, some guy, random randomly came into our university. I was taking a front of house class and he was looking for a chef to do a Mediterranean yacht program where like you, you just cook for a family of seven, I think on a, on a yacht that's just going to cruise the Mediterranean for like two months. Uh, and it happened to be like six weeks after I graduated or something like that, like perfect timing for me to just like clear all my stuff out of New York and then go you know, spend some time on this yacht. There's just like, there's incredible opportunities in this industry. If you're just like, you're, you're, you turn into a yes person. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So working at all these restaurants, what were some of the 
things that you saw that all the restaurants did? Were there some best practices that amongst all these restaurants they were doing and things that you still see as positives? Because there's a lot of things that all restaurants are doing that I think we need to be doing away with. But what were some of those things that you just noticed all the places were doing? Anything? So I I do need to add a caveat because I, there's a, there's a common practice that's thrown around that is like, if you stage somewhere, don't say that you worked somewhere. And so I worked at no, I worked at, um, Grace and French Laundry and Lise Verkit, but I staged at Franzen and Noma and I did my externship at Per Se. So I want that to be just be like on the record because I know that a lot of people like don't like when those things are conflated. Um, and I, I just like to be fully transparent on it because it's like I, I, the, the places that I list, it was not just like I went in for a day and like I left. Some of these were like longer term stages, but, um, yeah, I just want that to be on the record so that people don't get it conflated. It's just hard when like I worked at this restaurant in, on the west coast of Norway for this half Norwegian, half American guy who just got covered by Gordon Ramsay on his show as like the guy uh, who's doing it on the west coast of Norway. But I say Lisvaka and nobody knows what that place is. But then they're like, oh, well, did you go to this one place in Noma uh, in, in Scandinavia when you were there? I don't remember the name. And then I say, oh yeah, like I stopped at Noma for a little while. And then they're like, you were at Noma? And then it just like completely blows the lid off that. And for some reason, that's the only thing that they remember is like, oh, I stopped at Noma. And then they're like, this guy worked at Noma. Not, yeah. not, not the case. Need and that's the that place in. that everyone gets annoyed with is like, oh, everyone went and swept the floors at Noma, right? Exactly. Like, isn't that the exactly. Joke? Totally, totally. Um, so all that, that disclaimer uh, in there. I think that the, the biggest thing that I took away, especially from Thomas Keller restaurants was like systems focused thinking. So the idea that um, the Comey list was a printed template thing that lived in a folder in the chef's office and the sous chef would go there, put the date on the top, put that in another folder that then the expediting sous chef would take and then bring that to the menu meeting that would happen in the evening because the menu got rewritten every single night. And then during after the menu meeting, different chef de parties would request what they would want to get done on the Comey list for the next morning. And just that idea of like organizing how you prep things was completely opposite from what I was used to from my first restaurant job, which was like working in what was called a world bistro in the tiny town in Wisconsin where I was from, where it was like, if you needed to make Demi, you put it on the whiteboard, you know, like that's, that's what, that, that was the system, you know what I mean? Because it was like, there was only a couple of us and that was the communication pipeline by which we communicated to each other. We'd write it on the whiteboard. Um, Same thing with recipes, you know, like if you're making black olive puree, there is a recipe that's scaled in grams to how to make this black olive puree. And a lot of times, like there is a, like in that recipe, and I use the black olive one because it requires you to soak dried olives in advance before you make it. And, you know, there was a thing amongst our our chef de parties where there was a hack where you could uh, compress it in the cryovac machine to soak them a little bit faster when you would forget. But just the idea that, like, if you knew black olive puree was going to be on your recipe, it wasn't just something that, like, you as the chef de partie was instructed with to make it taste good. It was like you were part of a much larger machine and organization where, like, the chef put the expediting sous chef put black olive puree on that recipe because they knew that if they told that to you on at 505 when you passed up 
your components for that dish, they knew what components they were getting. Do you know what I mean? And that is necessary when you have 10 dishes on a tasting menu that change every single day. You have to have those systems in place. And so just like organizing recipes in that way, like I really took that, took that away. And, you know, the chef de cuisine at Franzen was a line cook at per se for a while. And so it's like you, in the same way that you bring up Charlie Trotter, like you can draw these lines back in the lineage to see like where these either mental models or systems or ways of organizing came from. Um, there's other little, little things, right? Like uh, there's, there's a lot of big, um, I don't know if it's big discussion, but like people debate about cutting the tape and do you cut tape as a way to make things look cleaner, to slow yourself down, to aesthetically have your prep look pleasing, or do you just kind of like barrel your way through it? I think what often gets conflated is like, oh, you're just doing it because you are super OCD and you need all your lines to be straight. But I think anybody who's worked at a Thomas Keller restaurant knows how much green tape they go through because like the pass gets taped down. So you put white linens on the stainless steel countertop and then you use the green tape to like um, affix it to that so that when you put the plates down, it doesn't produce this like big clanging noise. But during the evening, during the service, like you have sauce and chives and stuff that gets on this, this linen. So then at the end of the night, the tape comes off and then the linen just comes off. But by cutting the tape in that way, you make it so that when the guest comes in to see the kitchen, it's like, it just looks a little bit more pristine. And then I worked for a butcher shop right before I moved to to Europe and it was a guy who used to work at Meadowood which is the other another three star in like the Napa area and he told me that the 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 quickest thing he can do to make a walk-in look better is to go in and write all new labels and you know cut the tape and put them on the containers because it's just an immediate like Ah, like an, an exhalation when you like it, it the, the containers might not be fully consolidated and you know they're, 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 things might not be on the right shelf where they need to be but like when the tape is torn it just adds this extra element of like things are kind of skewed and a little bit ripped and like out of place um and so that was that was very interesting that that was like a takeaway of, of those things i think just overall cleanliness is something that catches a lot of people who are going from um, a place that does not does not execute in, you know, wherever that tipping point is, right? Where it's like, whether you call it Michelin, whether you call yourself a fine dining place, whether it's you have a tasting menu or not, I think that there's an element of, I call it on my channel, total station domination, where you just like, everything is so in its place from a, um, I have my... Um, tweezers that sit on the kind of like the left side of my Bain Marie because when I spin around after I open my low boy I can like go and grab that and if there's like a little bit I, and I actually have a folded towel in front of that Bain Marie because I know that the tweezer will kind of like drip two drops of water onto the countertop and so I have that towel there to like catch that water as it's like coming out of the thing and it's just like it, it truly becomes in the same way that you hear about any of these like great athletes who have like this routine that they do before they like go onto the court so that they can perform in this way. Um, that really stuck with me. And I really just, I geek out about that stuff. Like I, I loved again, back to like things that I grew up with. Cause I listen, man, like I'm five foot 11 with my hair spiked up like this, you know, like I'm not a big guy. Uh, I, 
like a little bit of coordination with like tennis, but like I have to be tall to be good at tennis. So it's like, I'm not going to be an athlete, but I have this intense love for kind of like going out there and performing and doing a good job under pressure. And so like cooking was the space that allowed me was the first place where I was like, okay, like I can actually do something like this. And so that's why I really kind of leaned into it like that. But I think yeah, those three things I would say like systems focused thinking, um, little kind of nitpicky things that seem like they're just like little flexes or they don't actually matter, like cutting the tape and like overall cleanliness, total station domination. Like there's a lot of kitchens where you don't break down during the, the prep day, but like I can distinctly remember staging at Alinea and right before staff meal, like you completely break down the entire kitchen. Everything gets taken off of the countertops. You scrub the, the, um, counters, tops and the sides. Uh, you scrub the floors. Uh, you completely take everything off of the stove. Um, and that sets you in a good headspace to go into service. And a lot of, you know, due to lack of resources, lack of time, like whatever, there's a lot of places that just don't do that. And I, I, I understand why that can't happen, but you see the other side and you're like, okay, like this is important. And like, I really value it when we can get it done. You know, I think really quick to touch on that. I think one of the challenges is so many of those places have so much unpaid labor. I think, you know, I've talked about that Huge. with a lot of people. So, you know, I've never worked at a place where we took stages ever. So everyone who is in there was paid and I've run a lot of them. So, you know, you have a, a budget to manage and it's hard to have someone like all these people you're paying to do all these things. It's the same with intricate plating, right? Like all these places, they have 17 people with their hands in the plate. It's like, well, what happens when you see a downturn in staging and all this? Like, I think it's going to change the shape of food. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is it even legal to allow stages in your restaurant? Um, I know Nick Kakonis has said a number of times on Twitter that nobody ever comes in Alinea and doesn't get paid for it right. at any of their restaurants. Um, a lot of well-known places have been sued for upwards of $100,000 for labor violations. So, you know, I do think it's hard when you have a staff of like five guys in the kitchen to do all that stuff. Totally. I mean, so to be clear, like even with my company now, we pay like above average salaries for everyone. We don't take unpaid work. Um, but I do have this kind of like back to my point about like making experiences the most that you can make them. I think that there is an intense value in, and I think you and I both follow Gary V and D rock where they're just like super into uh, pushing working for free just because the access that you can get when you're not asking for any sort of uh, monetary compensation, which is a resource that everybody's trying to juggle, right. Can often give you, greater access than you would have based on whatever credentials that you're able to present that person. And so I, I'm, I'm semi an example, right? Like the first um, couple of years of my career, like I worked for free, but I eventually was able to turn the experience and the networking and what I saw and what was interesting to me into a paid position, which then benefited me in the long term. Um, but I, I hear you, man. Like, there's a lot of people who just like they work. <laughs> there's a guy that stodged with us, and he just like he worked for free for honestly like four and a half years. Like, he would just travel the world staging, uh, like, and he didn't know how to do anything. Like, he was really good at prepping, um, but he he didn't necessarily know how to cook. 
which was a very, very interesting thing. But I, I, I hear you on the, on the realm of um, people not having those resources. But I, I, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be something where like you take everything from these places and you try to emulate it because you have to have the wherewithal to see, I don't have 40 people on staff. But you can take some of these principles and see like, what if we just like, cleared off the counters before we went to go eat staff meal or like other little things like that, where it's like, you don't have to take it to the complete extreme, but what are these kind of like system focused thinking? I think all of us can do that regardless of the size of our organization, you know? And I'm not opposed to the working for free. I think it's when you're being exploited and you're not learning anything. I like my internship, even though I was paid, it was an amazing experience. And I would have still done that for free to get that. It's when you're in there and you're just tying bunches of herbs or sweeping the floors and you're just like you know instead of having to hire a dishwasher they're taking this free kid and having him do that like if you're going to be working the line and coming out with tangible skills and learning organizational skills i'm all for that even at my age like i tomorrow would go stage at a restaurant if it was someone i wanted to work there if i wanted to go and learn i would go work at per se you know just to have that experience but i'm going to get something out of it totally and that's so that's an interesting point. I don't I don't necessarily know if we if we think the same on that because I think that if you are getting to the point where you are working a line style position, like you're on the line cooking a piece of fish, plating the entire dish that's coming off of a station and like it would be a real detriment to the restaurant if you didn't show up to work that day. And you're doing that for free. Yes, you're getting a ton of experience, but like I think that if that is the situation, you should be being compensated for that. If I randomly missed my train, my subway train heading into into Manhattan to do my uh, externship at Per Se for one day, the restaurant would get by just fine. You know what I mean? Like I was, yes, I was there observing and learning, but I didn't technically have all that much responsibility. Like it really would have sucked if on Friday the inventory for the walk-ins didn't get done because then the sous chef would have actually had to do it because that was like something that got delegated to me, you know? But like I was there in a learning style environment where I was observing, I would help with some things because like I wanted to get my hands on the stuff. But I think that there that's a little bit of that delineation where it's like... um if you really truly are providing value to an organization, then I don't think it's that hard to ask for compensation in return. But then, you know, you see all these, like, what is the excuse then of like people who have a 17 person uh, team on staff that's plating like the super intricate salad where it's like, it takes so many hands to make this come together. If all of those people didn't show up on the same day, yes, it would be a detriment to the restaurant. But I think that's where there's a little bit of a difference. I mean, there's a lot that goes goes into this conversation because I've thought about it a lot over years, but like in relation to what culinary school costs, because I know someone who staged all over the world and that was like their money instead of going to culinary school. When I look at, you know, spending a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in culinary school, it would still cost you less in money if you had to pay for rent out of pocket for a year or four years or whatever and still had these experiences. So like someone after four years, are they better trained to cook in the real world in restaurants if they've even just staged at Noma, Grace, Per Se, Alinea, whatever, versus four years in this weird bubble of Johnson & Wales, CIA, whatever. So, you know, you look at it both ways. And I know people who've exclusively just done staging or working for minimum wage or something like that and have come out very much more successful than people who went to culinary school. 
Because then you have the the opposite. Like I have a bunch of people who I worked with at some of these places who are just they've been there for seven, eight, nine, ten years, and it's just like they enjoy it because they have they get a level of respect in that kitchen where it's like they're not having to earn their respect because they've had a certain amount of tenure, which is amazing. Like they've been committed to that organization for a while. They know the ins and outs. Um, you know, they probably have great benefits and a 401k plan and all this stuff that's, that's going on with the restaurant. Um, and it, it, it almost becomes this thing where if you, if that person knows that the next thing they're going to do after that restaurant is their own thing, it becomes very difficult to kind of break free from that because then, and I think <laughs> So many of us are guilty of it where it's like, if you just got done watching Sean Brock on Chef's Table, like the next menu you write is probably going to be in, you know what I mean? Like, and so if you've spent so long at this one place, um, it's a balance, right? Like you have to change things up to continue to like inspire, inspire yourself, especially when you're like this moldable kind of piece of clay in the start of your, your career. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting. So you're not working at a regular restaurant right now. So Correct. all of these years in restaurants have taken you on a, a different path at this point. So what does your day-to-day look like where you are? Totally. It was when I was working in Norway, I was a sous chef and I gave, I was, it was, it was getting ready to be time for me to move back to the US. And I told my chef, Christopher, I said, I think it's going to be time for me to go. And I, like I said, I gave a year notice and he said, what do you want to do in these last 12 months while you're here? What do you want to learn? And one of the things that I told him was like, I I really want to look at the books. Like, I really want to look at the numbers Um, because a horror story that I tell on a, I think it was a Patreon stream podcast. If anybody's interested in getting the juicy details, I do tell it. Um, at Grace was that they weren't paying us, they stopped paying us overtime. And so I just remember looking at one of my paychecks and it was just like abysmally low. And I remember Curtis Duffy taking all of us chef to parties into the private dining room and telling us like apologizing and saying he didn't know that we weren't getting paid. And there was literally like 30 of us on the team. There was like 15 cooks, 15 front of house basically. And to me, I was just like, how are you the business owner, but you and the general manager don't know, like there's one person doing payroll. It's one lady. Like I know her name. Like I I can point at her. She's right over there. It's not like we outsourced it to like this firm that was like doing payroll. And so I was just so confused as a young cook of like, why, why does the chef not understand this part of the numbers? That was my first instance. And then the second instance was hearing the profit margins that French Laundry was making because they, they, they bring in about a million dollars a month in revenue. And to see the amount of money that front of house was making versus what back of house was making, and this was back in 2013, 14, basically, was also very perplexing to me because I was like, you're bringing in so much revenue, but I'm making eight twenty five an hour. And so that was very, very confusing. And I didn't really understand and I, I, I didn't have enough experience. I didn't know. And so when posed with the question of like, what do you want to learn? What do you want to see? That was something where I was like, I really want to see this. Like, this is like a, a case study. Like when you go to law school and they give you case studies, like I wanted, I wanted a real example. And in one of the meetings, I just remember 
we would sit there and he would say, guys, we made a killing last month. We made 8% profit. And I was just like, holy shit. Because you look and it's like staffing cost was 40%. You're living in Scandinavia. Like you pay people super well. Um, we got five weeks vacation. It was amazing. But like ingredients, we were trying to get like these vegetables from up in the mountains because like where we lived was there was a bunch of fjords. And so you had to like get up and over to get flat enough land to actually grow things. Um, We're using like incredible pork, uh, amazing ingredients. We were, um, we had a great rent agreement in a museum. And so like a lot, a, a portion of our rent was like, we had a great deal with our landlord uh, on paying for those sorts of things. Like I was doing inventory every month so I could see what my food cost was. And it was like still eight for every dollar we get, we only get to keep eight cents. That was crazy to me. And so I started to, you know, really rethink what goes into having a successful business model like this, because there has to be more level levers that you can pull as a entrepreneur, as a business owner, as a chef. I got really into watching Casey Neistat vlogs because I was, like I said, I had a ton of vacation. And so I was like, I was using that time and those resources to like travel a lot. And so I got into watching him, which led me to some other YouTubers, which eventually led to me watching like um, Tim Ferriss stuff. I, I, I was doing Tim Ferriss stuff like before, like uh, post French laundry time. So for timeline for people, it was culinary school, Grace, French laundry, Norway. That was the time, the chronological timeline. And so I started to listen to these people. Gary Vee got on my radar and I was like, oh, these people are like putting content out and using that money that they make from this content. I didn't technically understand how, but they were using it outside of like getting a TV show. Again, back to like me watching Food Network growing up. They circumnavigated all of that and they were putting out content online. I was watching Chef Steps and I was like, oh my goodness, these guys are like putting content out of Seattle. Like they're using real restaurant techniques back when they were like doing their OG content and people are watching and like they're making money. What if I could do something where I would produce content? I could still cook, but like produce, like find a way to produce a show out of the content that I was making. And so that led to me creating a show at the restaurant where I completely taught myself editing camera stuff. I didn't go to school for this stuff. I watched tutorials on people making wedding films to, f- to figure out like how to do fun editing techniques and color grading and audio adjusting and all that stuff. And so that led me to creating the show called Dish of the Day, which was a show where I would, we would change our menu every, you know, two to three weeks at the restaurant. And I would, you know, oh, tomatoes are coming into season. Uh, what's our next langoustine dish going to be? Because, you know, winter chicories are starting to come out of season. What are you guys going to, what, what are you going to make next? And I was kind of holding like a chef de cuisine style position as a sous chef where I would manage the team, but then also kind of like, do a little bit of recipe development as well. Um, And so I would shoot a show where I would work on a new dish before my shift. I would shoot it and then I would kind of like take it, take the dish to my chef for feedback, but then I would use that content to publish on YouTube. And that kind of expanded into this whole thing. But the idea was, what if we could have a a space that was like a, a cooking studio where content came first? 
because like the numbers on you know brick and mortar style food establishments is just like abysmally bad and i'm sure that the numbers on content studios and like people who produce shows is also bad because they probably get lumped into like small businesses that that failed too soon but the i saw where things were going as far as like more people getting internet access, smartphone adoption going up. Like Snapchat was just becoming a thing at the time. And I was like, this is gonna be this is gonna be big. Like I think I think that there's something here. And so the idea was to have something where the the cooking studio came first. And for full transparency for everyone, I'm not there yet. But the cooking studio where you create content where Samsung comes to you and says, hey, we have this new like Samsung comes top of mind because they just released phones today, but like we have this new phone that came out and we want to show how you can prop it up on your countertop and cook recipes off of it. Where are we going to shoot that? I would prefer they come to me with all my years of cooking experience and I can cook something that then gets filmed that turns into a Samsung ad that pays my bills. And then because I have this passion for like expressing myself through food and having like fun dishes that you know, just make people happy in whatever way that they're celebrating. I would do those types of experiences on Fridays and Saturday nights, like the the nights when people actually go out to eat. I didn't want to have to worry about what is my happy hour menu on Tuesday going to be, you know, because most people know, like, unless you're in like a high foot traffic area, doing something like that is literally discounting your offerings in hopes that people will come in and fill your seats you know what I mean? You're, you're taking it at a loss on the food side in hopes that people will buy alcohol. Um, and so there's so much of like the food and restaurant and those types of business models and, and mentalities that just didn't make sense to me. And it, it just seemed like signing up to a swimming competition where you start by tying weights around your ankles. You know what I mean? It just seemed like such a losing battle from the start. And so I was like, what if I gave myself this new set of skills to set myself up for semi paradigm shifting things, but like pop-ups were a thing, man. Like people were doing fun pop-up style things. Next was doing their seasonal menus where it's like every season, the menu changes to a different type of thing. So it's like, and I think that this is a possible takeaway for your listeners is that I wasn't trying to completely reinvent the wheel. I wasn't, I was taking things that I was seeing that was working, right? Like, I see Snapchat is working. I see people like watching food content on the internet, made by internet people, not necessarily food network people. I see that the traditional restaurant business model in the way that, you know, I was talking about a three star in Chicago, that doesn't work all the time. Like you are so set up for the uh, the numbers just aren't in your favor. And we are seeing this exacerbated by COVID, unfortunately. Like I feel so bad for all these places. But um that led me to doing pop-ups here in Seattle. I was pretty confident that I was going to try to either seek out an investor or prove the model first and then lead into being able to completely bootstrap it myself. Um, and I just didn't have enough experience running a startup. Like it was me. I had another chef who was like one of my best friends, which is like a whole nother thing. I hired someone to do sourcing for me just because I knew I really wanted to use really great product. Uh, I had a guy who would help me with marketing and then I had a videographer. And that was kind of like our little small team. We were going to take over the city um, and we got really positive praise from Eater. Like I got like a couple of great dinners under my belt 
the biggest thing that I wanted to focus on during that time was figuring out what does Justin's food look like? Because at the time, like my first few menus was like, it looked like a Frankenstein menu of like Lise Vaca meets Noma meets French Laundry. You know what I mean? Like it, it didn't look, it didn't have an identity yet. And so I wanted to use that pop-up time before I kind of committed to a, a space for any of this content stuff to figure out what does my food look like. And during that process of doing pop-ups, I met this woman who is now my business partner and she was doing event production stuff where she was just like doing all these different food events, some things not even related to food, where she would execute with you know celebrities. She was going to New York pretty often, going down to the Bay Area. And she was like, I do these food events, but I'm not a chef. And I was like, that's interesting. Like I'm, do- I'm technically doing events, but I'm not an event producer. You know, this is interesting. And so long story short, like we got, we, we ended up chatting and I did a couple of dinners for clients of hers. We really enjoyed working together. She had a bunch of like small tech startup experience and back to me not knowing enough about running startups. I thought it was a natural fit for, for her and I to start working together. She offered me an equity stake in the company, which then turned into her saying, okay, like you really took this seriously when I gave you a piece of the business, like, would you want to come on as co-founder? And so then we kind of like launched it from there. And so that is what is now Voyager's Table, where again, I run the culinary program of that, but it's not completely reliant on food being the driver of the business. So we do full suite event production and hospitality for um, clients all over the place. So again, from New York to Vancouver to San Francisco to Seattle, um, obviously COVID put a bit of a damper on that and we had to do like a heavy pivot. We can talk about that if you want. but. Um, yeah, that, that was like a really big unlock for me where it was like, she, we have ambitions to launch media projects going forward. Obviously, we're trying to just stabilize during this time. But finding someone who shared my same values where it's like, she is such a hospitable and gracious food loving person, but she also sees the economics of restaurants and just kind of is like, eh, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um and so she's just incredibly savvy in being able to figure out these other opportunities to do this thing that we love, but do it in a sustainable way. Because if you don't keep that top of mind, that's when you see these things where it's like you have to hire free labor because your food needs to be more impressive because you need to get the media attention again, because you need to get the people coming into your door, because you need the revenue during those off months to be able to pay your rent. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's so funny to take these restaurant incentives and boil them back down to like, okay, this is why this is a problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I guess one thing is, I mean, it sounds like you enjoy it. I think the challenge is a lot of people do it because they feel they have to, right? Like everyone's saying you you have to blog or you should have a podcast or a YouTube channel or you got to get on TikTok or, and it doesn't come natural to a lot of people and they don't enjoy it. And then I think it shows, right? Like, you can tell when someone's making a YouTube video that they don't really enjoy it, but someone told them they should have a YouTube channel. It seems like you definitely went in, not just because you saw it as something you needed to do or should do, but it seems like you genuinely enjoy doing it. And I think that's one of the big differences. But that's the thing though, is like I, when I hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, I published my first YouTube video. I don't think it's in, in its entirety, but like a large percentage of that first YouTube video and it is so cringe man like i had no personality on camera i was like trying to make these weird jokes to the camera that like oh well i don't really actually care because i thought that it was just so 
silly and too try hard to actually like be a personality on camera. But then I realized that like the people that I liked to watch don't do that. They, I, I like watching them because they're just themselves. And I actually feel like they're telling me something from their, like, I respect them. Like I listen to them and I like watching them because I respect them. And because I feel like they're being real with me. And so if I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to try to put on this face when I'm on camera, like who can I expect to listen to me? Um, but yeah, man, it was like, it was a process to learn how to convey ideas in a clear and concise way. I always told myself in high school that I wasn't a good writer, but then I would be able to sit down and write like 6,500 words. That was a script for a YouTube video. And so it's like, I think there's a lot of people who have these negative points of self-talk with themselves just because either someone told them that or because that they just had a, I, I use the analogy from Italian job where the guy says, I had a bad experience. Like it's the same thing. Like what, what in your life made you think that you like, was it a school presentation where you had to make a video and you sat in your desk and you blushed a little bit when you had to hear your voice for the first time? Like what happened that makes you so averse to this thing that, everybody reached for first when they had to shut their restaurants down. You know, like people reach for their phones to put the word out about things when COVID hit, you know what I mean? Or it's like you have a new thing that you want to tell the world about, like, wouldn't it be great to have an email list to do that with? And that's where like, I get a lot of value from finding people who don't, if you're not a YouTube person, go follow David Perell. P-E-R-E-L-L. He runs a course called Rite of Passage, and he only talks about writing. If you are only interested in audio, you brought him up earlier, Naval Ravikant tweets, and then he sits across from a guy, and they do two-minute podcast episodes where he just elaborates on the tweet that he read. It's audio only. There's no video version of it. And it's just like that gets listened to millions of times, and there's no sort of like, you don't have to put your face on. You don't have to work out of the little tiny bowls of like, these. this is my baking powder and this is my butter. You know, like there's so many, it, it, there, there's so many opportunities for you to share your ideas that scale. That was the interesting part for me with all this content stuff is that like the fascinating economics of a restaurant is like, if you have 150 seats and you can do two and a half turns, that's an amazing, like you are so limited by what you can do in revenue on a night. Whereas Chris, if you and I went into business together tomorrow and we launched a headphone company and Wired wrote about our headphones and we got an influx of 9,500 orders, we could call up our manufacturer and make it happen. If you get a great write-up in the New York Times and you suddenly have 5,000 people that want to come eat at your restaurant on Saturday night, you have to tell 4,500 of them to go away because you just can't do it. And so it's like, it's this paradox of like success where like you literally just need to be humming along at this specific amount of business and that's doing well. But if you really like being able to go parabolic on any of your things, like you have to find other ways to scale. And yeah. for me, if you're thinking of food as an idea or productivity or like travel or what you learned any of these things can be distilled down to ideas. So why would you not find ways to make those scale? 
that was kind of like my mindset going into it. So let me jump back to Naval there because so I love him. The whole podcast on wealth creation, which is like his, he called it like tweet score, Gold right? Mine. So Gold for mine. anyone who's thinking about scaling, growing business, trying to be wealthy, um, I would recommend that. I recommend it all the time, but I love that. If, for people who don't know, he did this thing on Twitter where it was like a 42 tweets about wealth generation. And then he read it and broke it down into like 42 podcast tracks, like four, 42 podcast episodes. So you can just go listen to one. The one I love is where he talks about like time and money and, you know, kind of like he gives himself this aspirational hourly wage, which is, you know, it could be $300, it could be $5,000 and says like, if it costs less to, you know, have someone else do it, do it. like if it's going to take you two hours to mow your lawn and your time is worth $300 an hour, you can get your lawn mowed for less than $300 an hour. Pay some guy $60 to mow your lawn and use that hour to build something great. You're not going to build that thing that's great by eating away at your day by doing all these stupid little chores. And I think that's what so many people in life do. And it's really um, taken a lot of effort or a lot of work for me to kind of figure out what is worth paying to have done so that I can focus on the important work, right? And not, ev- and, and not everyone's on that same page. I think it's hard when you have a spouse who might have a different view on money and, t- you know, like, don't pay someone to do that. We can do that ourselves. That or, was, you know, whether it be your parents or man. something, you know. That, that was my parents. Did. Like, my mom was always like, do it yourself. You just got to like, why would you pay someone to come clean the house or like mow the, do the landscaping or work on your car? Like, you can change the oil yourself. And my dad was like, to his fault, right? Like he basically got in, in his seventies now and he like, doesn't know how to do basic, basic things for himself because he was just like so averse to it. Um, but yeah, like four hour work week was the first thing that actually taught me that, which is Tim Ferriss's uh, bestselling book where he gives the analogy of like, if you make $35 an hour, if you can find a task that you will pay 35, $30 for no, the reverse $40 for whether it's logo design or video editing or cleaning something for you, you are by having someone do that task for you, you're only paying $5 to have them do it because your wage is 35. They, they charge 40, you know, because with that time you can then make $35 back is kind of the mentality behind it. And it's so funny that you bring up Naval because I'm writing a video right now. Um, talking and it's so funny. uh, The video is, is, Semi might be called why I still pitch restaurants, even though I don't have one. And it comes from this idea that Naval responded to, to this guy on Twitter, uh, where they asked what would be the best bet as a career in today's day and age for a young professional in early twenties. And his response, which is such a Navalism, was skills, not careers, period. That's it. And I think that that so encapsulates kind of like what I love one about Naval is that he's so concise and to the point and full of wisdom because he spent so much time introspectively thinking about these things and getting real world experiences. But also in that answer, there's so much to unpack in the sense that like the idea of having a career is dwindling and dwindling, man. Like it's evaporating. Like it's a little tiny pool and we're all watching it go away. Um, the, the, the way to be valuable in today's job market uh, market in general, like the age of the internet, is to be able to market your skills. It's not your college uh, diploma. It's not the place on your resume. 
Sometimes it matters, yes, if that place has weight. But to be able to say to you or me, Chris, where it's like, I'm interested in like opening a brick and mortar. Oh, well, I actually have skills where I can cook, but then I can also have a camera presence and on camera presence as an employee of yours. Like those are two skills. I would much rather hire for that rather than all of these other sorts of things. So I'm like, I'm writing a video on that specifically because I think even if you don't have the ambition to own a traditional restaurant, the restaurant environment, especially at a place that has like, that has it figured out in the sense that they don't go through these lulls of like not having customers or that they're like a new restaurant that potentially has the potential to shut down. You have the ability there to get skills. If you go to an institution of a restaurant that's been around for a while, you can go there, you can spend time working, and you can get the skills that I think are required to be a professional chef in whatever you want to have a food truck, you want to do pop-ups, you want to do in-person, you know, private chefing, like any anything that runs the gamut, a restaurant environment is one of the best places to get those skills. Well, and some of our listeners have probably heard this or know this about me, but I worked at IKEA for almost three years. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.